And please turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. here in just a moment, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. Before we do, let's pray briefly together once again. Our Lord and our God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have gifted it to us. You have not left us in the dark to wonder about life in Christ, but you have given to us everything sufficiently that we need to know to live lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for the sufficiency of your word, and we pray now that you would, by your Spirit, open our minds to understand the things in your word that you have given to us. Lord, help us to receive your word with meekness and with humility today, and that we may receive it with joy as we get to learn and to grow in our understanding of the depths of your wisdom and of your grace and of your love towards us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord of Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, as we prepare this morning to eat the bread and to drink the cup that is set before us, we are preparing to proclaim something. And I hope you caught what Paul was saying there in verse 26 as to what you and I will be proclaiming as we partake of the bread and the cup today. We are proclaiming the Lord's death. And that's the simple reality that I want us to look at today, that we are proclaiming a death. And that should be somewhat surprising to us, especially today when death is something we usually try to distance ourselves from. Death is something we typically try to forget rather than remember. It's something we oftentimes find ourselves silent about rather than proclaiming on a regular basis. Especially such a gruesome death like the death of our Lord. In fact, I want to read something to you from the abstract of a modern medical journal describing the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is this death we are proclaiming as we partake of the supper. Listen to what the journal says. Jesus of Nazareth underwent Jewish and Roman trials, was flogged, and was sentenced to death by crucifixion. The scourging of the flogging 
produced deep stripe-like lacerations and appreciable blood loss. And it probably set the stage for hypovolemic shock, as evidenced by the fact that Jesus was too weakened to carry the crossbar, or the patigulum in Latin, the crossbar to Golgotha. At the site of crucifixion, his wrists were nailed to the patibulum, and after the patibulum, the crossbar was lifted onto the upright post, his feet were nailed to the post. The major pathophysiologic effect of crucifixion was an interference with normal respirations, that is, interrupted breathing. Accordingly, death resulted primarily from hypovolemic shock, that is, low blood volume, and exhaustion, asphyxia, the very muscles of the lungs being worked to complete exhaustion. Jesus' death was ensured by the thrust of a soldier's spear into his side. Now here's the question I have for you after reading a, a modern account from a, from a doctor of the death of our Lord. And here's my question for you. Why would anyone want to proclaim this kind of gruesome, painful, and if you understand the circumstances and the details of the Jewish and the Roman trials that Jesus underwent... A murderous death. Why would anyone want to continue to proclaim such a painful and gruesome and murderous death? Why is this murderous death in particular of Jesus Christ what we proclaim each month in partaking of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? Can't we simply have a celebration of life for Jesus Do we really need a proclamation of his death? Can't we simply proclaim the life of Christ and all of his good works that he performed while he was living? Why can't we just proclaim all of his good teachings? As we have so many of those recorded for us as well. Well, to be sure, we must proclaim those things to fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded either by precept or example. But Christ also commanded for us to do this in remembrance of him, to take bread and break it as a symbol of his broken body, his body that was broken in his death. And Christ commanded us to do this, to take a cup, the cup of the covenant his shed blood in his dying for the forgiveness of our sins. And so yes, to be obedient to Jesus Christ in his life and in his teaching, we must also be obedient in continuing to proclaim his death. And so if that's what we are proclaiming, and if that's what we are to proclaim in obedience to Jesus Christ and in obedience to the will of Christ as it is expressed here by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, that we are proclaiming Christ's death each time we partake of the supper. We need to learn at least something of our proclamation. We need to know at least something of the significance of this death that we are proclaiming 
each and every month. And as we do so today, I want us to be motivated learners. I want us to be motivated by the seriousness and the gravity of the proclamation that we are about to make today. In fact, it's a proclamation of eternal life and death significance. Simply put, without the Lord's death that we are proclaiming today, there would be no eternal life for any of us here. Without the Lord's death that we are proclaiming today, there would only be everlasting death for each and every one of us here. And so it's important that we understand the gravity and the seriousness of the topic of the Lord's death. Well, let's begin looking at some of those some of the content of the proclamation that we're going to do, and we'll do that here in just a moment. But before we look at two aspects in particular that are there on your outline, I do want to address one underlying truth to our proclamation today, and to really any proclamation at all. In fact, you may be thinking right now, well, how much can we really get out of these three words, these three single-syllable words, the Lord's death? Can't we just be content with saying, yeah, we proclaim the Lord's death and move on? The Lord died. As simple as that. Well, no, like any proclamation, there is far more in the short phrase than may initially come across the ear. You can think of a a phrase like, we won. Two simple words, two short words, we won. And when you begin to turn that phrase and you begin to think about it, you realize there's a lot of content in such a short phrase. It typically means as well that someone else lost. That there was some decisive moment, event, activity that brought about the result of victory. That there are usually days, weeks, months, even years in the making of such a win. Especially if you think of athletics or Military victories, years and years of training, go into a win. And so in those two words, we won. There is much content that can be unpacked. Things that happened before, during, after, and even various ongoing implications. Well, in like manner, the Lord's Supper, as we proclaim the Lord's death, this is a proclamation, yes, with three short words. We proclaim the Lord's death. But these three words carry far more content than immediately meets the ear. In fact, I believe that the content that lies underneath this proclamation is really content of unsearchable depth. Since it coincides with the love and the wisdom and the grace of God. And so, we'll look at simply two truths today. As we proclaim the Lord's death. And these aren't the only two. In fact, Lord willing, in months to come, we'll continue to flesh out uh, what this proclamation really entails as we proclaim the Lord's death together. But let's begin with the first two that are before us today. And the first is simply this. That in proclaiming the Lord's death, 
we proclaim the seriousness of sin. We proclaim the seriousness of sin. In the Lord, his death that we're proclaiming and our sin are inextricably linked. In fact, you probably know well and have been taught well as you've been catechized. It is your sin and my sin that has brought about the death of the Lord. And we always take things seriously that lead to death or that cause death. In fact, warning labels often indicate the seriousness with which we ought to approach a certain product or activity. If something like rock climbing may cause death, we go to great lengths to mitigate that risk. Harnesses and ropes and gear that is tested, tried and true to prevent the possible death. Or products, especially a product that may cause cancer, usually comes with a warning label. And no one freely or carelessly uses such a product, at least not in their right minds, that can cause cancer or sickness or illness that leads to death. But I want you to know that when it comes to sin... And when the Bible speaks of sin, there never has been and never will be words like may, or might, or possibly may cause death. As serious as we take certain things and hold them at arm's length or go to great lengths to make sure that we mitigate all the risks of death in this life, None of those things are as serious as sin. In fact, when Scripture speaks of sin, it always speaks of sin as certainly causing death. You can think of Romans chapter 6, where we read that the wages of sin is death. But there is one payment for sin, and that is always death. Or as God told Adam in the Garden of Eden, in the day that you disobey me, in the day that you sin, in the day that you eat that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That was God's warning label on the tree that day. There is no may or might or can or possibly bring harm or death when it comes to sin, but an absolute certainty that sin will and does bring death. In fact, every sin deserves death. That is the unanimous witness of Scripture. It's important for us then to recognize here when we proclaim the Lord's death, We are proclaiming the seriousness of sin. That sin has always been dead serious. 
In fact, it's always taken so seriously by God that even the one who bore our sins, the beloved and the only begotten Son of God, undercame the death that we deserved. And this is where we see how serious sin really is. When Jesus Christ, our Lord, took upon himself our sin, the Heavenly Father could have looked at him and said, Oh, but this is my Son. This is my only begotten Son. This is my Beloved. Maybe sin isn't so serious after all. Maybe I could change the wages a bit for sin. Maybe it just needs to be really harsh punishment, but not a punishment unto death. Well, you and I both know that that's not what happened. That God didn't change the wage of sin even when that sin was laid upon His Son. Even when that sin was laid upon one whom the Father had loved from all eternity, the seriousness of sin would not allow God to change the wage. God is infinitely just and righteous, and it would have been unjust for God to change the wage of sin, even in the moment when that sin came and was laid upon our Lord. And so we must recognize that sin is always treated as serious by our God, so much so, That when we proclaim the Lord's death, we are proclaiming a death that has come to the only begotten Son of God. The Son who has been infinitely and eternally loved by His Father. But sin is so serious that the wage wasn't changed even for Him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, is what Paul tells us about the Lord Jesus. And of course, he was pierced through then for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, as Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah also prophesied in Isaiah 53 that he has poured out his life unto death and he was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. In all the messianic prophecies of Jesus Christ, sin and death were inextricably linked because sin is always dead serious. The Lord Jesus Christ died then as one who became sin for us and in so doing died our death as the wages of our sin. God has never and will never lower the cost of our sin. And so as we proclaim the seriousness of sin in the supper today, may we continue to proclaim that same seriousness in our lives. In fact, I think one of the most scandalous things we can do after we partake of the supper today, After proclaiming the Lord's death and after proclaiming the seriousness of sin, is to go out from here and freely sin. Or to go out from here and make flippant excuses for our sin. 
Sin always remains a serious thing. The Lord died because of the seriousness with which God takes our sin. And so as we proclaim the seriousness of sin today, we don't only proclaim it in a 10-second window in which we are partaking of bread and wine. But it is a proclamation that we are to continue to proclaim with our lives as we take sin as serious as God takes it. And as we seek to then put it to death in our lives. And we use the supper today as a means of grace to us. To strengthen us in our fight against sin. To put it to death. Well, as we move to our second fill-in on our outlines, we've already really begun to introduce this concept, but we need to put a finer point on it. And so as we look at number two, as we proclaim the Lord's death, we proclaim the supply of a sinless substitute. The notion of a sinless substitute, like most, if not all, of our doctrines that we confess, goes all the way back to the Old Testament, even all the way back to the Garden of Eden and God's first dealing with our first parents. In fact, you can probably remember what God did with our fallen parents as sin and subsequent death entered the world. There they stood, hiding from God, naked and ashamed. And so they were clothed by God by garments of skin, as Genesis 3.21 tells us. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now the picture here is not that Adam and Eve didn't have human skin until after the fall. No, God clothed them with animal skins, is how we're to understand that text. Skins not of their own making, like the fig leaves that they had tried to piece together. But skins that required blood. Blood had to be shed for our first parents. For them to continue in any way, shape, or form in carrying on the will of God in living before God, they had to be clothed. And the lifeblood of another then had to be drained for there to be a suitable cover for the shame of their sin. And not only blood, as the scriptures continue to progressively unfold from this first sacrifice onward, but sinless blood had to be shed. In fact, even there in the garden we can see it that it was only the image bearers of God who had rebelled and sinned against him. All the other creatures at this point, all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, all the creatures of the seas, none of them had rebelled. They were still, in one sense, in a sense of in a state of innocency and blamelessness. And so God sacrificed, shed the blood of one of these blameless, unblemished creatures to cover. Our first parents. And of course, that theme continues to develop through the sacrificial system of God's institution that for the various lambs and goats and bulls that would be sacrificed, whose blood would be shed 
on behalf of his people. To atone for the sin, to remove their sin and washing it away and in satisfying his wrath. It was always the blood of an unblemished sacrifice, of an unblemished lamb that had to be shed. In fact, it was also the lamb that featured prominently in the Exodus during the Passover meal. The very meal from which the Lord's Supper springboards into existence. And in Exodus 12, it was the unblemished lamb that had to be slaughtered. Whose blood then was to cover the doorposts of the house that the people of God would be passed over by the destroyer. It is the blood of a sinless, unblemished substitute that God has supplied time and time again. Well, of course, the New Testament makes this abundantly clear that all of these types and shadows, all of these motifs foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who bore our sins and not his own. For he didn't have any of his own to bear. But he, rather, bore our sins as the unblemished Lamb of God. In fact, that's what Jesus' own cousin, John the Baptizer, declared at the outset of Jesus' ministry. To behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Peter also Cast the Lord Jesus in this same imagery as John, as the Lamb. In 1 Peter 1.19, Peter tells Christians that have been redeemed, that you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so as we proclaim the Lord's death today, we proclaim the death of a sinless substitute, in fact, the only sinless substitute as the blood of bulls and goats and lambs could never fully atone. They always pointed to something or to someone beyond themselves, always pointing to the unblemished Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we proclaim today then the supply of this sinless substitute. And we must know, as we think of this supply, that it is a gracious supply and a loving supply. And that's what I want to leave you with before we close. That we proclaim the gracious supply of the sinless substitute. And here's why. 1 Peter three eighteen, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. When Christ died as the righteous one, as our sinless substitute, he did it for us, the unrighteous. In other words, there was nothing in this sinless supply that God has given to us that we deserved. We didn't merit the supply of a substitute. It comes by God's sheer grace alone. And so it's a gracious supply in that we were unrighteous 
when the Lord died for us. And it's a gracious supply in the effect or in the results, as First Peter told us, that he might bring us to God. That is, those who had rebelled against God, as those who were content to have their backs turned on God, for those who were running the other direction away from God in unrighteousness and sin. Christ suffered and died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And so the supply of a sinless substitute is a gracious supply. It's also the loving supply that we proclaim as we proclaim the supply of a sinless substitute. And listen to the love here in Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see then that the Lord's death as the sinless substitute for sinners is really the showcasing of God's love for us. And if you ever find yourself asking the question, why? Why would God love me, a sinner? Why would God love me as an unrighteous one? The only answer you're going to find in Scripture is because God God loves you. In fact, He's loved you from before the foundation of the world. That's the reason why Christ would die for you. And so the death of the Lord that we proclaim is a proclamation of the gracious and loving supply of a sinless substitute. Because that's who God is. He's gracious and he's loving. Apart from who we are. As sinners and ungodly. And so Jesus Christ is the sinless substitute. Who died for us as an expression of God's inexhaustible grace and deep love for us. And so in the end then we are not simply proclaiming a gruesome murderous death that has been inflamed by the hatred of wicked men. But the Lord's death is one and the only one in which we see the two truths that we've considered today beautifully dovetailed together. Because as we proclaim the Lord's death today, we are proclaiming that God has judged our sin with the seriousness that every sin deserves. He has judged our sin with his full cup of wrath, resulting in death. And so the death we proclaim today is the death of the sinless substitute in our place. That we will never have to undergo The cup of wrath that leads to death. Sin is always serious. Sin will always lead to death. Because Jesus Christ has drunk that cup to its dregs. You and I can have life. You and I, the unrighteous, the ungodly, can have life. 
because our gracious and loving God has provided our substitute to bring us to himself. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in his death, we see the seriousness of our sin. Lord, we pray that as you never minimize sin, but give full vent of your wrath towards it, no matter whom that sin is laid upon. Lord, we ask that you would help us to adopt that same view of sin. Lord, may we hate it in our lives, even as you have shown us your hatred for it on the cross. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us today by this meal that you set before us. Strengthen us in our battle against sin. But Lord, we also thank you today that you have provided so loving and so gracious a supply in providing our sinless substitute. And so we thank you, Lord, that in the proclamation of the Lord's death today, that we get to proclaim the one who has taken our sin upon himself, the one who knew no sin, to become sin, to bear our sin, and to take upon himself then the wages of our sin, death. So Lord, thank you for the opportunity today to proclaim the Lord's death, for in so doing, we proclaim the life that we have graciously given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.